Amen. This morning, we're going to continue on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews Greater Than, where we have been looking at the reality that the author of Hebrews was trying to get the original audience to, to understand in a time where they were facing unheard of and unseen up to that point in time of the early life of the church, persecutions and trials and tribulations for their faith. And at the very heart of the book of Hebrews is the key theme that Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus Christ is greater than all things. Jesus Christ is greater than all people. And the temptation that would have been facing them to turn back and to go back to their old ways of life, to, to go back to that dead religion, to go back into Judaism, to go back into the sacrificial system and into the Old Testament, to go back into to face those things and to, to grab hold of those things would have been futile because Jesus Christ is greater than all of those things that that dead religion had to offer. And so we've been seeing this reality play out of this truth that we've got something better given to us in Christ Jesus than anything the world has to offer. And we've seen the author of Hebrews lay out for us that Jesus Christ is the greater means. He's the greater means of revelation. So we have a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ or who God is through Jesus Christ than any other means. That he has the greater message. That he is the greater messenger. And we've seen that he came on the greater mission, not just like Moses in the days of Exodus to lead a people out of physical bondage, but to lead people out of spiritual bondage. And not only have we seen that he came on the greater mission, but he has the greater ministry, a ministry that provides true eternal rest for us, a ministry that provides for us joy and peace and comfort, that which no other uh, ministry could ever provide. Now what we're going to see over the next five chapters is we are going to see the reality of the author of Hebrews laying out for us that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. So for the next five chapters, he's really going to focus in on this one truth. He's going to focus in on this one reality that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Now he's going to lay the groundwork of that with a key theological theme that is really at one of the hearts of the Christian faith. And he's going to show us in our passage of, of Scripture this morning, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10, that our brother Brad just read for us. He's going to show us that Jesus Christ is a greater man. That we need to understand this reality. This is something that has brought me more comfort over the last eight months than anything else in the book of Hebrews. And there's a lot of comfort and a lot of encouragement in the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm just going to be as open and honest with everybody in here uh, that, that, that I can. When, when I received the news on April 17th that we would become in our own autonomous church, that uh, First Baptist Broken Arrow would be going their, their own way and we'd be going our own way. I, I can tell you, I, I was pretty mad. I, I was pretty upset about how all of that played out. And I can tell you that some of that gave way to frustration and some of that, that anger gave, gave way to uh, some despair in some regards. It hurt. And pain and sorrow. But the truths that we are going to unpack today in this passage of Scripture brought me more peace and more joy than anything else God used 
over these past eight months. And I pray that it does the same for you because what we're going to see here today truly is life transforming if you will seal it into your hearts and upon your minds. This idea that Jesus Christ is the greater man really revolves around the reality that the high priest had to make sacrifices for himself before he could atone for the sins of God's people. But yet Jesus Christ was sinless. He didn't have to atone for any of his sins because he never committed any sins. And so what the author of Hebrews is wanting to do as we start to transition into this idea that Jesus Christ is the great high priest is he wants to lay a foundation and he wants to lay a groundwork for us in this reality of the truth that Jesus Christ is our great high priest because if Jesus Christ is a greater means, if Jesus Christ is the, the greater messenger, is if, he, if he has the greater message, if he's come on the greater mission, if he has the greater ministry, then he seems to be so superior and he seems to be so transcendent above all of us and his creation, then we need a mediator to be between us and Jesus so that he can intercede for us to God. That might be the tendency of the thinking that, well, if Jesus Christ is so much greater than, than, than everything and everybody else, then I am so inferior, then I can't approach Jesus, so I need a buffer in between me and Jesus. I need somebody to stand in that gap. And what we're going to see in the passage of Scripture today is that you don't need anybody else to be the buffer. You don't need anybody else to be the mediator between you and Jesus. That's where Catholicism gets it wrong. They think that you got to go to a man, you got to confess your sins to a man, you got to come to an individual, and then he will represent you to God Almighty. He'll represent you to Jesus, who will then go to God. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says that you have direct access to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever's going on in your life, you can bring it to Jesus. And ultimately, that's what the author of Hebrews is going to lay out for us. Verse 14 of chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, the high priest in the days of Jesus and the sacrificial system, you've you got to understand, he was a sight to see. In all of his regalia and all of his dress, especially on the Day of Atonement, when he was getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies and to make atonement for all of God's people's sins... He would have put on a linen tunic, a fine linen tunic. And then over that linen tunic, he would have put on a blue robe with beautiful scarlet and purple threads. And it would have had pomegranates on the, uh, sewn on the, the, the hem of the garment with bells in between each pomegranate, gold bells. And so when he walked, it was this magical kind of musical sound, if you will. And it was twofold. One... The sound that he would make was, was one, just musical for the ears. But two, when he went into the Holy of Holies, if they didn't hear the bells, that means that sucker was dead. And they tied a rope to his leg. And if, if they didn't hear the bells, they was, they was pulling him out. Remember back when we first looked in our book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ sat down? That he sat down at the right hand of the Father and what that means? Because the work of the priest was never done. They were always moving. They can never sit down. They were always moving. But Jesus Christ has sat down because his work is finished. There's not another sacrifice that he has to, to do. It's all been done. It's all been rectified. It's all been forgiven through faith in Christ Jesus because all sins have been paid on the cross for those that place their faith in Christ Jesus. He would have then put on an apron like ephod over that. 
And it would have had these onyx stones, one on each shoulder, and six of the tribes of Israel on one stone, six uh, tribes of Israel on the other stone, and it would have been laid in, uh, laid in gold. And then a breastplate would have been put on over that with two golden rings at the top and golden chains to hold it in place with four rows of three beautiful stones on the breastplate there, each with the name of one of the tribes of Israel on that breastplate. He would have looked magnificent. He would have had a linen turban that would have had a gold uh, wrapping around it with the words etched across it, holy unto the Lord. Now, when an individual wanted to go sacrifice and atone for their sin, they had to go to one of the priests. And on the day of atonement, when the high priest would enter in to make atonement for all of God's people's sin, he would pass through the curtain and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take blood and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, which was really just the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before he did that, he had to make atonement for his own sins. That's exactly what we see play out in chapter 5, uh, verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Now, Jesus Christ didn't have to do that. Now, think about this with me for just a second. In King Solomon's temple, behind the, the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies would have been the Ark of the Covenant. But Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians... They came and attacked that and destroyed Solomon's temple. Now, nobody knows what really happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody, nobody knows. Now, if you watch the History Channel, I'm sure aliens were involved in some kind of form or fashion, and they've got the Ark. Some, some's happened. I don't know what happened with the History Channel, but it's all about aliens. I don't know. Don't watch the History Channel. That's, that's all I'm going to tell you. Don't watch the History Channel. Nobody really knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. In 515 B.C., the second temple was built and re-inaugurated. So when the high priest reinstituted the sacrificial system and he would go behind the Holy of Holies, what would he sprinkle blood on? Because the Ark of the Covenant went there. So on the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, what would have been behind the veil exposed for all to see in that moment? Well, what had transpired was that they had found the cornerstone of the first temple. And they had taken the cornerstone of the first temple and they had placed the cornerstone behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And so the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood upon the cornerstone. So when that veil was torn in two to signify that there is nothing separating us from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we have direct access to him. Remember, Jesus said that you tear down this, this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And guess what? He's our cornerstone that our faith has been built on. And so when that, corn, that, that curtain was torn in two, we saw the cornerstone. That means we are to build our lives upon Jesus Christ. We have direct access to him. He passed through the heavens. He didn't just pass through the Holy of Holies. He passed through the heavens. He is the very presence of God because he's God incarnate. Now, the first key thing that I want us to see that I pray gets sealed into our hearts is one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, and that's this. We need to see the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus came in the flesh. In fact, let me tell you how central this is to the Christian faith. 1 John 4, 2-3 says this. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
How do we know the Spirit of God is at work in an individual's life? Or how do we know that the Spirit of God is behind some of the teachings that we're exposed to? Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. That Jesus came in the flesh. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a hologram. He, he wasn't just God acting like he was 100% man and 100% God. Now, this is a core truth. Why? Well, first off, he had to be born under the law. See, he had to be born under the law so he could fulfill the law to set us free from the law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 speaks of this reality. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He had to be born under the law so he could fulfill the law in order to set us free from the law. Secondly, we see all throughout Scripture this reality. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. In other words, there's no forgiveness. There's no atoning for our sins without the shedding of blood. Leviticus speaks of this idea in chapter 17, verse 11. We'll, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, that's one of the core themes of Hebrews 9 and 10. But we see that way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with their fig leaves, their own kind of wisdom, their own righteousness, their own ways, try to cover their sin with fig leaves, we saw that God said that's not sufficient. There's got to be shedding of blood so that it can be remission of sin. And so he provided animal coverings for them. And so an innocent animal had to pay the price to cover that sin. Ultimately, it's a foreshadowing of the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins and your sins so that the blood that he shed would provide atonement for us. Now, this is a reality and this is a truth that the author of Hebrews has already touched on. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, we, we see of this as well. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He took on flesh and blood. Why? Because remember when we talked a few weeks ago about the, that federalism, that doctrine of federalism, that there's a federal head. Adam is a federal head of sinful man. Jesus Christ is a federal head of forgiven man. That we had to have one come in flesh and blood to break the curse of the law, to break the curse of sin. And Jesus Christ is that curse breaker. In chapter 2, verse 17, we, we see the author of Hebrews touch upon this as well. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In order for him to be a high priest, he had to take on flesh. We, we'll get to that here in a minute in verse 1 where it shows for every high priest of chapter 5 chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. So our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took on flesh. One, to be born under the law so he could fulfill the law, to set us free from the law, and so he could shed blood to truly forgive and to wash and to cleanse our sins. Verse 7 talks about in the days of his flesh. And so we see this key theme and this key idea of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now, why, why is that important? God's word will show us it's because he can sympathize with us. See, I don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes in my life, things will happen. And I'll be filled with so much pain, I'll be filled with so much hurt. What do I do with that? Where, where do I take that? Oftentimes, we find peace and we find comfort from the very ones 
who have gone through the same things that we have gone through. In fact, God's word will, will say in Corinthians that we comfort others in their times of pain with the comfort that we've received in our times of pain. You know, I've, I've shared this story. I didn't share it with first service because usually if I tell the story, I start crying and I hate when I cry. I always tell my that you got a neck tattoo. You're not supposed to cry. You're like, you can't, you can't do that. But I, I, I remember after our first biological child was born, she was a miracle baby. My wife was told she could never have kids. God said, yeah, watch, watch what I do because he's greater than anybody's Ph.D., not long after she was, she was born, probably within a year, we found out my wife was pregnant again. Now, I was excited, a little nervous to have not quite a one-year-old and getting ready to have another one and in diapers, uh, that was a little nerve-wracking. But boy, we were excited. And then one day we were out just for uh, a normal trip to the store and my wife started to get out of the car and uh, something was obviously wrong. There, there, there was blood everywhere. So I got in the, the car and raced as quickly as we could to the emergency room. And we just knew as we sat there that something was wrong with the baby. And we finally got taken back and we're just praying, just, just praying. I mean, at that point in time, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I'd like to say I was a great man of faith in that moment, but to me, all signs would point to that this, this baby had some serious problems and may not even be alive. And the doctor come in after doing the ultrasound and, and said, look, I, I don't quite know what to tell you, but I don't know where the bleedings come from. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but your baby's fine. Man, I tell you, we broke out in just a full-on worship service. We literally turned on worship and praise music on our phone. They were trying to get us out. You know, if you were in the emergency room that day and you needed a room, I apologize. It probably took about 15 minutes longer because we were in that room and we were just praising God. Fast forward one week, we went to our doctor just for a normal follow-up and checkup. During the ultrasound, you could tell something was wrong. That nurse was trying so hard. She just looked at us both and said, I'm, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And the devastation that washes over you, especially when you see your wife just crushed and there's nothing you can do. But God is the, the giver of life. He's giver and he gives and he takes away. And within less than a year, my, my wife was pregnant again. All of the excitement is, is back happening and roughly right around 12 weeks, right around 13 weeks, going for our normal visit with the doctor, uh, ultrasound is happening and the same nurse in the exact same room a little less than a year ago looks at us and says, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And the overwhelming pain that settles into your heart when you hear that again. And the anger and the frustration of God, I do my best to try to serve you. 
I do my best to try to lead your people. And my wife is just sobbing uncontrollably, and I don't even have any words. What do you do with that? Some of you have been in some of those similar situations where you have so much pain and you have so much grief that is washing over you in a moment of despair, in a moment where life has just been flipped upside down and you're given news or something has happened to you or a loved one to where, what do you do with all of that pain? What do you do with all of that grief? What do you do with all of that sorrow? See, the temptation of the enemy is to turn back to the old ways. The temptation of the enemy was for me to turn back to the drugs, for me to turn back to alcohol, for me to turn back to something other than Jesus Christ. And the temptation for all of us in those moments of pain, in those moments of grief, in those moments of brokenness is to take that to something other than Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is laying out for us in our text today is showing us that actually the best thing you should do, the greatest thing you should do is to take that brokenness, to take that pain, to take that heartache, to take all of that grief and take it to Jesus. Why? Because he understands. You say, but how can he understand? He he, he was sinless. How, how could he understand? He, he was sinless. The great Bible teacher and preacher, J. Vernon McGee, used this illustration at one point in time. And J. Vernon McGee, if you ever heard J. Vernon McGee, he's got this old kind of southern just, just accent. I mean, he's a great Bible preacher and teacher. And he talked about this reality of Jesus Christ understanding our pain and our sorrow in a way that we never could because he was without sin, because he endured more pressure than we could ever imagine being tempted with. And he used this analogy in this way. A boat in a water can only take so much pressure. If the pressure builds up against the boat to a point that the boat can't take it anymore, the hole gets ripped away from, from the boat, and now water comes rushing in. Now there's a release of pressure. The pressure is no longer as strong against the boat because the water has found its way into the boat and the pressure has been released. Now in our lives, when we're tempted and we have the enemy attacking us, there's pressure that builds up against us. You understand what I'm talking about when you're under a spiritual attack and you have all these temptations that are bombarding you and the pressure is starting to build up against you. When you give in to that temptation, there is a release. Now, the floodwaters of shame and guilt and condemnation come into your heart and come into your life. But there is a release from that pressure. But Jesus Christ never got any release from the temptation of the pressure of the attacks of the enemy because he never buckled, because he never wavered, because he never gave in to sin. So he understands the pressures of the enemy's attacks against us in a way that we could never dream or imagine because we do buckle, because we do give in, but yet he was sinless and never did. So... God's word shows us in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he can sympathize with our shortcomings. That we do fall short, that we do give in to temptation. But yet Jesus Christ can sympathize with the reality that in this broken world, we will face temptations, yet he was without sin. Secondly, we see in verse 7 of chapter 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You ever been there? 
You ever been so broken? You ever been to a point where you have so much grief and so much sorrow? Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe a wayward child. Maybe the news that I received that, that day in that hospital room. Whatever it is, whatever tragedy, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever brokenness that you may be in, failed marriage, whatever that pain and that suffering is, have you ever been to the point that the only thing that you could do is drop to your knees and with loud cries and tears call out to God? Have you ever been to that point where you understood in the very depths of your soul that there were no answers? Nobody in this world had an answer. All the things you've been turning to have failed you. None of them will help you. No person in this world could truly understand and help you in that moment. Jesus Christ sympathizes with our sorrows. Look at this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what it's referring to. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus Christ can sympathize with our sorrows. But not only that, in verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus Christ not only sympathizes with our shortcomings, not only does he sympathize with our sorrows, but he sympathizes with our sufferings. That he understands suffering. Jesus Christ suffered for us on the cross. Jesus Christ suffered for us to remove our sins. He is well aware of sufferings. That when you're going through pain, when you're going through trials, when you're going through the sufferings of this world, you have a great high priest who can sympathize with you in those sufferings. He understands about the suffering of this world. That's why in John 16, is a part of his upper room discourse. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have sorrows. In the world you will have suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Where do we take all of this pain? Where do we take all of this grief? Where do we take all of these sorrows and these sufferings? We take them to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he sympathizes with us in that shortcoming, in that sorrow, and in that suffering. Now, ultimately, that is what we see in the text as a reality of humanity of Christ. But what is the implication of that on our lives? Well, the implication of that is what we see play out in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when we understand the humanity of Christ, then we understand that we get our help from Jesus Christ. That he is our help. That our help comes from Jesus. That he is the one who is able to help us. And so we must come to him. Now think about this. What would it look like if you got in a car wreck and your leg is broke, your ribs are broke, and you got a gash on your head and you come out of the car and the other person in the car, he's got a broken leg, he's got crap, cracked ribs, and he's got a gash on his head. And you walk over to that person talking about help. Help me. You crawl on the ground to the other one that's laying on the ground. Help me. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? You ought to be tested to see if you got a concussion or what's going on with, you, with your mind. Why would you go to somebody else that's broken? Why would you go to somebody else that's hurting and seek help? 
No, you're going to call for the one that has all of their faculties, that, that isn't broken. He's the one that you want to come and to help you. But isn't that what we do in our own lives? Spiritually, when we're broken, spiritually, when we're grieving, when we're in pain and we're in suffering, and we turn to other individuals that are broken for our help, look, we can turn to them, but ultimately, Jesus Christ is the one that's going to help us. Jesus Christ is the one that is going to heal us, for he's a great physician. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand is that he sympathizes with our brokenness, yet he is without sin. He is the one that can help us. And you say, but how? I'm, 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 I'm weak, and if he can sympathize with my, my weakness, how can he help me with that? We see that he cried out to God with loud cries and tears. We see that he suffered death, death on the cross. So how do we find our help from Jesus? Well, one, there's help to be found in Jesus in our time of need through the power of weakness. One, one of the great tragedies of the church is our failure to understand there's power in weakness. We think that in our dictionaries, in our economy, power and weakness are antonyms. And that's true. But in the economy and in the vocabulary of God, power and weakness are synonymous. Because when we understand the power of our weakness, we can move out of the way so God can work in and through our lives. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, you notice that there's power in our weakness. The enemy will try to get you so puffed up with pride that you say you don't need help. And that's actually preventing you from finding the help and getting the healing that you actually will find in Christ Jesus. That there is power in our weakness. Now, listen to this. It says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We, we have a, a faulty view of the power of God in the church today. We look at the power of God as if it's some cool lightsaber, which that'd be kind of cool if that kind of worked out that way. But, but that's not how it works out. We think the power of God is some weapon that, that we wield, that if we're strong enough, we can grab hold of the power of God and we can use it as an instrument in our lives to defeat whatever enemy it is that is before us in that moment. And it's up to us to constrain and to hold on to the power of God and, and, and use that to defeat our enemy. But that's not what the power of God does in our lives. The power of God is not a weapon to be wielded. It's a person that rests upon you and you rest in. You notice that? The power of Christ rests upon me, is what Paul would say. See, the power of God is already resting upon the life of the believer. It's not for you to grab hold of and try to wield. It's for you to move out of the way of and allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through you and allow the power of Christ to rest upon you. And we operate in the power of Christ when we recognize our weaknesses and we rest in his power. So there's power and weakness. We cannot find help from, from Jesus in our times of need through the power of prayer. Remember verse 7, he said, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. There's power in prayer. 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
that there is power in prayer. So it's not just power and weakness and the recognition. I don't have the ability to overcome what it is I'm facing, but it's also the recognition that Jesus Christ does have the power to help me overcome what it is I'm facing. So I'm not just acknowledging my weakness. I'm acknowledging the strength of God Almighty. And that's ultimately what our prayer life is. Our prayer life is the extending away from ourselves to God Almighty. It's the recognition that I don't have the ability in and of myself, the strength of the wisdom in and of myself, but I know the one who does. And I'm calling upon him in my moments of despair, in my moments of trouble, because he can sympathize with my shortcomings, he can sympathize with my sorrows, and he can sympathize with my sufferings. We can also find help from Jesus in our time of need through the power of the cross. In verse 8, it talked about his suffering. And ultimately, the ultimate suffering was Jesus Christ on the cross dying for my sins and for your sin. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The lost in the dying world, they don't understand the cross. It don't make any sense to them. They, they don't, they, it's folly to them. It's foolishness to them that we would preach God coming in the flesh, living a sinless life, and dying on a cross for this. At first, they don't want to even acknowledge that they, they, they have sin. Two, they don't want to acknowledge the fact they don't have the power to overcome their sin. So the, the cross is folly. The cross is foolishness to them. But it goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So where do we find our power in our moments of weakness, in our moments of sorrow, in our moments of suffering? It's in Christ Jesus. Because it's a recognition of our weakness and his strength. It's at the very foot of the cross. That is where we find our power. So that's the implication upon our lives. Now, what's the application? What, how do we apply to our lives the reality that Jesus Christ came in the flesh... He sympathizes with our shortcomings, our sorrows, and our sufferings, that we can come to him and find help in our time of need through the power of our weakness, through the power of prayer, and through the power of the cross. Well, we see in verse 4 of chapter 5, talking about the high priest, and no one takes his honor for himself. This isn't something that the high priest took upon himself and just woke up one day and said, well, I'm going to be the high priest, or I'm going to work hard enough, and I'm going to become the high priest. They were chosen by God to be the high priest. So too, Jesus Christ came willingly, and I don't understand the full implications of the triune God having that discourse before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would come and willingly die for my sins and your sins on the cross, but yet he was chosen for that task, and he came in the flesh, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for our sins. So we see this idea that because of the humanity of Jesus, we find our help from Jesus, then we need to give all honor to Jesus. We need to honor Jesus Christ with our lives. Now, how do we do that? Well, we read in this text, in verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We need to draw near to God. How we apply this reality to our lives is that we draw near to God. We come near to the throne of grace. And we do so with confidence. In some of your translations, maybe it translates that word confidence with boldness. We come with boldness. Now, in the Greek, that is a word that was used for individuals that were free to come and to speak publicly about matters that were going on. In other words, it's about free speech. 
It's this idea that if you were a citizen of Rome, you could gather together with other citizens of Rome and you could speak freely about the matters that were going on in the world, at least you were supposed to. Now, you had some emperors that they didn't like that very much, just like today, they don't, there are certain uh, emperors in, in different aspects of the world that they don't want free speech. But yet this word here has the picture that you can come into the presence of God and you can tell him anything. Nothing is off limits. You can come into his presence and you can bear witness to your soul, to him, and that he will receive you and hear and listen to everything it is that you say. So when we come into the presence of God, we should come in the presence of God as individuals that have been freed through faith in Christ Jesus to speak freely with our Savior, knowing that he sympathizes with our shortcomings, our sorrows, and our sufferings. So we need to draw near to God. Now, I love this. It says, draw near to the throne of grace. That the throne that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sits on is the throne of grace. That brings me so much comfort because I need grace. You need grace. Without grace, there's no hope. Here in just a little bit, we're going to sing about the amazing grace of God. And it truly is amazing because it truly is life transforming. Because we don't deserve it. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. And he gives us both mercy, uh, mercy and grace. Now think about this. He sits upon that throne. Do you know in every kingdom that the world has ever seen, every empire that the world has ever seen, every king, every emperor, every czar, every president, uh, uh, every chief uh, has always had a successor? Always except for one kingdom, except for one throne. Jesus Christ has always sat upon that throne. He's sitting upon that throne right now. He will always sit upon that throne. There is no successor. There's none that's come before him. There's none that will come after him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in your moments of shortcomings, in your moments of sorrows, and in your moments of sufferings, he is the one that we ought to draw near to. Now, in the light of that reality, that we all need Jesus. And I pray that everybody in here understands there's two types of people in this world. There's Jesus and there's everybody else. And unless you have nail-pierced holes in your hands and in your feet, guess which category you fall into? The not-Jesus kind. Meaning, you need Jesus. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That nobody needs Jesus any more than anybody else. And nobody needs Jesus any less than anybody else. We all desperately need Jesus the same. Now what is the implication of that reality that we all need to draw near to Jesus to find power in our weakness, to find power in prayer, to find power in the cross for us to understand that our grace and mercy comes from the throne of grace that Jesus Christ sits upon it. Well, we see in verse 2 this aspect of the high priest in the days of Jesus. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So the application for each and every one of us that have to draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of hell, to find that power is for us to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward of this world. The ignorant that are ignorant to the things of God. The ignorant that don't understand the things of God. Listen, church, we got to stop expecting lost people to act like saved people. They're lost. They're dead. A dead person going to act like a dead person. We keep thinking and complaining and, and, and why, why, why is the world acting like this? Because the world loves darkness and hates light. 
And until they give their life to Jesus Christ and are transformed from a dead person and made alive in Christ Jesus, guess what they're going to keep doing? Keep acting like a dead person. So you can either complain about it or you can get busy sharing the gospel with those that are ignorant to the ways of God and trust God that he will transform their hearts and make them new creations in Christ Jesus. Church, we're at a point where we got to make a decision. Are we going to complain about the world around us or are we going to get busy doing what God has called us to do because that's the only answer for the broken world around us? It's one or the other. And you you got to settle in your heart what that's going to be. You can keep trying to change the world through Facebook all you want. You ain't going to do it. Only through the power of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, will this world be changed. Now, each and every one of us need to settle in our heart. Now, how do we do that? Well, we deal gently with them. We deal gently with those that are ignorant to the things of God. We don't deal harshly with them. We don't scream at them. We don't yell at them. We don't browbeat them. We deal gently with them. Why? How did Jesus deal with us? That idea of dealing gently really is this idea of coming alongside of somebody and walking alongside of them and helping them. In other words, it's to be sympathetic to their shortcomings, to their sorrows, and to their sufferings. The same way that Jesus Christ sympathizes with us in our shortcomings, in our sorrows, in our sufferings. Then it goes on to say he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. There are some individuals, I think we're, we're, we can be more harsher on those individuals that are, that are wayward than we can the ones that are ignorant. In other words, you know better. You know the truth of God's word. But you're feeding upon the pig trough like the prodigal. We need to deal with them gently. And we need to live our lives like the father does in the story of the prodigal, where he stays on the very edge of his land, looking out into the distance, waiting for that individual to come back, to be embraced, and to be restored. Because we all need that. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life I look up and I've been feeding on the pig troughs of those worlds, and I need to go back and I need to start feasting upon the bread of life and the living waters of Christ Jesus. And you know what? He receives me every time and forgives me of my sin every time because that's what the Word of God says. So should we not treat other individuals as gently as Jesus Christ treats us? Thirdly, we honor Jesus Christ with our life ultimately by dying to self. We have to die to self. Matthew 16, 24 through 25 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, if you're so busy trying to find honor for your name, you can't honor the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You you can't. It's one or the other. Either you're seeking out the honor for yourself or you're seeking out to honor Jesus Christ. You can't do both at the same time. We must die to ourselves because that's when we actually live. And we bring him honor when we remove ourselves from the equation and look intently upon him and ask him to do what only he can do in and through us. That is the picture and that is the reality of what God has for each and every one of us. I pray you see why this has brought me so much comfort over these last few months. 
Because when you feel like God doesn't understand this, when you feel so broken and so much despair that you don't know where to take this grief, this sorrow, these shortcomings, this suffering, God's word gives us a clear indication that where the enemy says run from God because he doesn't want anything to do with you, the word of God says you better run to God because he's the only one who can help you. He sympathizes with our shortcomings, our sorrows, and our sufferings. He will give us help through the power of our weakness, through the power of prayer, and through the power of the cross. And I pray that each and every one of us would honor him by drawing near to him each and every day of our lives, by dealing gently with those that are around us, and by dying to self so that he can live in and through us for his glory and his honor. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me?